I'm sure uh, most of us, if not all of us, have been involved with churches at various times in our Christian experience, which we did not feel were doing a very good job in a number of different areas. You uh, may be involved with one of those right now. And uh, I think it's important for us as a body to gain some insight into how uh, we as a church can go about handling these kind of complaints. Uh, When we do have some dissatisfaction or some discontent with the way in which certain ministries in the church are being handled, how is it as a church that we are to resolve these? Whether it has to do with the uh, pulpit ministry, the ministry of members of the pastoral staff, the youth ministry, the children's ministry, home Bible studies, women's ministry, babysitting, whatever the case may be, when we are discontented with something, how is it as a church that we can biblically resolve these complaints? I think we have a pattern established for us in Acts chapter 6 that will give us some help in this regard, and I would like you to turn there with me. Last week, uh, we covered 30 verses. This week, we're going to cover 7. decided that 30 was a little bigger chunk than I could handle two weeks in a row, so we'll reduce the pace a little bit this week. Now, verse 1 of chapter 6 introduces us to the particular problem and complaint that arose in the first century church. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The word uh, complaint there uh, means to uh, murmur, to grumble. It's uh, murmuring that arises due to, to complaint, to, uh, to discontent. And that was the problem that had arisen in the first century church. You'll observe that uh, Luke says it was at this time that this took place, and the time frame that he is referring to here is chapter 5, where we saw them uh, hailed before the Jewish Senate to answer for their activities. So there was an external pressure at this time upon the church, and here in chapter 6 we're introduced to a period of internal pressure. So the church was being challenged both from without and from within. The Christians here are called disciples, you will notice. This uh, is a term that Luke uses throughout Acts to describe us as Christians. And it emphasizes the fact that we are in a relationship with Jesus. We are his disciples, his followers. Uh, Paul uses different terms to describe us. He uses the term brothers quite often, which stresses our relationship with one another. And he also uses the term saints, which stresses our relationship of distinctiveness or difference uh, to those in the world around us. Now, one thing that this verse makes clear to me is that the, the early church was not a perfect church. Uh, we're often uh, urged to go back and recapture the uh, pattern and the excitement of the first century church as if the first century church was free from problems and and defects and flaws. But we see here clearly it was not. We've already observed in chapter 5 that there were hypocrites in the first century church. We see here that there was a problem with favoritism and with a complaining spirit. So despite the fact that this church had just been filled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and was under the direction of apostles who had been personally trained by Jesus himself, They were not without problems. 
And uh, this is a reminder to us that there is no such thing as a perfect church. The early church wasn't, and if uh, you have been with us very long, you are quite aware that we are not a perfect church. And if you haven't discovered that, you soon will. And uh, I think it's a helpful reminder to us that because of the frailty and the weakness of our humanity, uh, we never will completely as a church measure up to what God wants for us to be. We are under construction, just as our new church building is. We as a church uh, are, are under construction. Uh, reminds me of something that Howard Hendricks is quite fond of saying. He says uh, to people all the time, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. I think, uh, I think that's a good word. As a friend of mine is, uh, is fond of saying, Christians are not perfect, they are just forgiven. Now, the tension that had arisen here in this early church was between the Hellenistic Jews and what Luke calls the Hebrews. The Hellenistic Jews were ethnic Jews who spoke Greek. They did not speak Aramaic, which was the native language of the Jews. The world had been Grecianized because of the conquests of Alexander the Great, and many Jews had never learned Aramaic. They had grown up in other countries, uh, Egypt, uh, Rome, Turkey, and had grown up speaking Greek. There were Hebrews, in addition, ethnic Jews, who did speak uh, the Hebrew of their day, which was called Aramaic. Now, the Aramaic Jews prided themselves on being pure in their uh, language and their worship, and they would often look down on the Hellenistic Jews, accusing them of selling out to, uh, to worldliness and to paganism. And evidently, the spirit of uh, superiority had crept into the early church. And the Hellenistic widows, that is, widows who were Greek-speaking, were being overlooked in favor of the Aramaic-speaking widows. Now, the church at this point assumed uh, responsibility to meet the needs of widows in its fellowship who did not have family members who would do that for them. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 5 is, uh, quite, makes it quite plain that if a believer has a widowed mother or a widowed mother-in-law, it is his responsibility to take care of her needs. In fact, Paul says if he does not, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But if a Christian widow did not have a family to take care of her, then the church assumed that responsibility. And evidently, one of the ways in which they met the needs of these widows was to take the money that had been brought in by the Christians who sold property and possessions and to purchase food for them to take care of their daily material needs on that basis. And it was out of this parceling out of the food that this conflict arose because the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, were being overlooked in this ministry. Well, the first step in dealing with a complaint is the step that was evidently taken by these first century Christians. What they did is they brought this problem to the attention of the apostles. They brought this problem, this weakness, this deficiency in ministry, to the attention of the leadership of the early church. Now, I might mention at this point that the function and the responsibility that is being carried out by apostles at this stage is carried out uh, when the apostles died off, was carried out by elders. So that when we look at the way the apostles handle themselves in this situation, we can gain insights into the way in which the elders of this church and us as a church body are to handle similar kinds of problems. Well, the first step, I believe, is when we observe some kind of weakness or deficiency in a church ministry is to imitate the pattern of these early Christians, to bring this problem 
to the attention of the church leaders, which in our case are the elders. If you're aware of a weakness in the ministry of this church, please, the elders beseech you, bring it to their attention. Uh, let them know that this problem exists. Discuss it with them. This is a far better solution, by the way, than what we normally do, which was bring this complaint to everybody else in the church. And so uh, what the writer of Hebrews calls a root of bitterness, which he says springing up will defile many. That is, if we have complaints about a ministry in the church and we spread this to other members of the church, a root of bitterness begins to grow up, which will defile many people. It's like gangrene, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, and it will begin to infect others with the same attitude. And uh, it's a better solution than uh, leaving one church and going to another, which is another way that Christians often deal with these complaints. Uh, to do that, if a person does that, he will soon discover that the church to which he has just attached himself has imperfections and uh, warts on its nose, just like the church he left, and the problem resurfaces all over again. So the first step when we observe this kind of weakness is to bring this to the attention of the leadership and to discuss this problem with them, and together with the elders to determine if there is a valid weakness here, if there is a genuine need in this fellowship which is going unmet. And it must be this kind of a, an issue where there is a legitimate need which is not being addressed by the body. In that case, the criticism is valid and uh, the leadership of the church needs to address that problem. But it must be a, a matter of substance and not simply of style. Uh, if you uh, feel that the uh, people who do the teaching on Sunday morning have uh, either too much hair or not enough hair, that doesn't qualify. It needs to be something of substance where there's a genuine need in the church that's going unmet. Now, the next step was for the leadership of the church to evaluate this need in light of their own priorities. And this is what Luke describes for us in verse 2. The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, that is, the whole church brought them together, probably in, the, in Solomon's porch, which is where they were accustomed to meet as a large group, and said to them, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. He goes on in verse 4 to say, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So these apostles, who are the models for elders who were to follow them, saw clearly that their priority responsibilities in church life were to pray and to minister the Word. Those were the two most important things for them to do. And this is a challenge, by the way, to those of you who are elders among us this morning, is to ask yourselves the question, am I devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word? Are those the priority activities and ministries of my life? The word devoted there in verse 4, I just looked this up, and it means to adhere to, to persist in, to busy oneself with, to be busily engaged in, to hold fast to, to continue in, to persevere in. You get the real notice, a note of commitment there. This was a priority for these men that they pursued and they were, would not allow anything to interfere with this fundamental responsibility to pray for their people and to teach the scriptures to them. 
And we need to realize as a church body that this is an indispensable ministry in our midst, is to have people among us in uh, large group settings like this, in small groups that meet in homes, in Sunday school classes, to have among us people who teach the scriptures and are sold out to that ministry and so committed to that ministry, that indispensable ministry of feeding the flock, that they will not allow anything to interfere with their pursuit of that ministry. And that was what the, these apostles had determined for themselves. As uh, Joe Aldrich says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what these apostles did. The main thing was to teach the scriptures, and they were determined to see that they pursued that course. Now, I think all of us must ask ourselves the same question that the apostles asked themselves. Uh, all of us, at one point or another, are going to be tapped on the shoulder or appealed to, in some sense, to assume uh, some kind of ministry responsibility in the church, uh, maybe of any particular type. It may be a very practical ministry, meeting material needs. It may be a ministry of hospitality, a ministry of counseling, a ministry of teaching. And the question that all of us need to ask ourselves is, what are my priorities in ministry? How has God equipped me and gifted me to minister in this body? And that's what I must pursue. And if I am, uh, if I am approached about becoming involved in a ministry, which is good in and of itself, and a legitimate need, we will see that this is the exact situation here. But I realize that my priorities as a believer lie in other areas of ministry, then I must pursue the other areas of ministry. And I must be willing to say no, despite the uh, appeals of others to get involved in different ministries. Um, I heard uh, Dave Roper say once about 13 years ago, and I've never forgotten it, that the mark of maturity is the ability to say no. And all of us in ministry activity must learn to be mature in that regard. I've uh, seen uh, uh, an admirable development of this, this consciousness in one of our elders. It's a good friend of mine, John Barnes. In the mid-70s, uh, John was probably uh, uh, either on or the chairman of every conceivable uh, Christian committee in the state of Idaho. If he were to get merit badges for a committee representation, he wouldn't have room on his coat for them. But as he grew in his understanding of uh, his own gifts and uh, principles of ministry from the New Testament, he became convinced that it was more important for him to invest his time and energy in encouraging key men to grow in their faith, to move alongside them on a one-to-one -one basis or a small group basis, to spend time in the scriptures with them, to pray with them, to challenge them to become God's man in their own personal lives and their marriages. And gradually, as he has developed, he has shifted more of his priority and emphasis and time to developing relationships with individual men and far less to, to chairing committees, as useful and as beneficial as those uh, committee functions are. He has seen that his priorities for ministry lay in other areas, and so he has learned to say no when the occasion requires it. Now, one practical result of this, by the way, will be that we as a church, uh, because uh, our elders must make these priority decisions, we as a church may at times be disappointed uh, about the level of personal involvement that elders are able to give to ministries which are of great concern to us. But we need to realize that it is important for them to determine the priorities, to determine the the ministries that God has called them to, 
And it's important for them not to let anything interfere with that. And we must be willing to understand that and recognize that. Well, now what did these leaders of the first century church do when they became aware of the fact that they themselves could not meet this need? Well, Luke goes on to tell us in verse 3, the twelve said, Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So quite simply what they did when they realized that they themselves could not meet this need due to their priorities is they appealed to the congregation to recommend to them gifted people who could meet this need. Now, occasionally our elders will do that with us. They will stand before us and bring our attention to a ministry in the church in which there are needs. And they will ask us to recommend to them gifted, mature people that we feel would be able to handle that ministry effectively. And when they do that, we must be prepared to prayerfully consider that and to recommend people to them to consider for this kind of a task. Now, it's possible, it's not always the case, but it is possible that if you are aware of a need in this body, that you may be the one that God has selected to to plug that hole. Uh, I call this the uh, Steve Newman method of recruiting. If you've uh, ever dealt with Steve, uh, you know that if you come up with a dandy idea for a ministry, you will find yourself in the next couple of minutes in charge of that very same ministry. But it is possible. Uh, Your gifts uh, may may tune you in to certain needs in in this body which are not being met and need to be. And you may be the person that God has selected to begin to to plug that gap. Now, the apostles are helpful here in that they they tell us the kind of people to look for in in recruiting. Uh, If we're involved in any kind of a situation where we are looking for people to assist us in ministry, uh, or if we are, are trying to be the kind of people who are valuable, who are an asset in ministry to a church congregation, there are three things the apostles say that we should look for. First of all, he says, these men should be men of good reputation. And what he means simply by this is that these should be men and or women whose maturity is recognized by others, uh, whose life is of such quality and character that their maturity is readily discernible to those around them. That's the first quality, a recognizable maturity. Uh, And this is important because there may be people who have gifts in the appropriate areas but do not have sufficient maturity to assume that responsibility. So the first thing we must look for is the sense of maturity. And, of course, this was important in this particular situation because these men were handling fairly large sums of money. So it was important that they be people of integrity and honesty. The second thing that the apostles direct them to look for is men who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Men who are obviously indwelt and empowered by the Spirit and particularly had been given by the Spirit the gift of wisdom. Now, wisdom in the New Testament is a very practical gift. It is the ability to skillfully use the truth of God in dealing with everyday life. And that was the quality, the gift of the Spirit that was required of these men, that they have a skillful ability to handle this uh, area of tension, this area of need in the church, to handle it well with discernment, 
with insight, and with tact. So that's the second thing that we are to look for, and the second thing that we are to ask ourselves, to look for the appropriate gifts for a particular ministry. It's entirely possible that someone may be uh, well-developed from a maturity standpoint and yet may not have appropriate gifts for the ministry to which they've been assigned. And they will find themselves very dissatisfied and the ministry in that particular area will not be effective. So we uh, must look both for maturity and secondly for appropriate gifts, gifts that are in the in the appropriate areas. Now the third quality that we are to look for in recruiting people for ministry is uh, surfaces when we examine the names in verse 5 of the men that were selected. Verse 5 says, The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Uh, we know a good deal about the first two men that are listed. Stephen, of course, uh, was the first martyr of the church. We will look at him more carefully next week and in the weeks following as David takes us through chapter 7. Uh, and because of his uh, powerful testimony to the gospel, he eventually lost his life for Christ's sake. The second man that we encounter in this list is Philip. Philip, likewise, plays a prominent role in the rest of the book of Acts. We see him in chapter 8 as the man who spreads the gospel to Samaria, as the man who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, and later settles in the community of Caesarea. And we find out, by the way, in chapter 21 that Luke and uh, Paul uh, stayed with Philip in Caesarea, and it's entirely possible that Philip himself was the source for Luke's record of this early account. Now, these two men, by the way, Stephen and Philip, are, uh, give us an interesting little insight uh, that's helpful to us. Uh, you may feel that uh, your gifts and abilities are not truly being recognized at this point, that you do not have the, the status or the stature that you ought to have in the body, and you're eager to see your ministry expand and, uh, and the borders of your impact for Christ uh, widen. Well, these men are very instructive to us because, because we see them here in chapter 6 filling a, a very practical uh, and not very glamorous role, that of seeing that widows received three square meals a day. And yet, because they were faithful in what was a, a small task, God was able to entrust them gradually with greater and greater responsibility. And this is a lesson for us. If we desire to see our ministries expand, the important thing for us is to be faithful right now in the small things that God has entrusted to us. And if we will be faithful in the small things that God has entrusted to us, he will gradually entrust to us greater things. Now, we don't know much about the rest of the men in this list. Uh, we know that Nicholas was a proselyte from Antioch. Uh, this tells us that unlike the rest of the men in this list, he was not an ethnic Jew. He was a Gentile. A proselyte was a man who began life as a Gentile but converted to Judaism and to express his conversion would uh, receive uh, circumcision as a sign. And he would be called a proselyte in that case. You will find the term God-fearers occurring later in the book of Acts. 
uh, a God-fearer was someone who likewise was a Gentile and who converted to Judaism but was unwilling to become circumcised, simply agreed to obey the Jewish laws. But a proselyte went the whole nine yards, agreed to obey the law, and took circumcision as well. And this man, Nicholas, who was from Antioch, which is probably Luke's hometown, which is why he singles this out, uh, Nicholas became not only a circumcised Jew, but completed his spiritual pil pilgrimage here in the early chapters of Acts by becoming a Christian. And he is one of the seven men who were placed in charge of this ministry need. Now, the thing that uh, you will observe about all of these names is that everyone, without exception, is a Greek name. There is not an Aramaic name like Cephas, for example, among them. But everyone is a Greek name. And that indicates to us that these men were Hellenistic Jews themselves. And these were the men that were being placed in charge of a ministry to Hellenistic widows. Well, what's the, uh, what's the point? Well, the point is, quite simply, that these were men who had a burden for that ministry. They had a vision for that ministry, a concern for that ministry. And out of that concern, that vision for it, developed on their part a desire to do something about it. And that, I think, is the third thing, the third quality that we should look for in seeking people to assist us in ministry is to look for people who have a vision for that ministry, who have a burden for it, a desire to see that need met. This is far, far better than finding people who are reluctant uh, uh, but willing volunteers and just throwing them into the breach simply because they raise their hand. See? Uh, you want people in ministry who, who minister without reluctance uh, or without a sense of obligation or guilt, but because of a vision for what can be accomplished. And I would encourage you, by the way, as you consider various uh, opportunities to plug into ministry in our church, is to ask yourself the question, what what kind of needs do I really want to meet? Do I really want to see met in this congregation? Uh, what, what kind of ministries do I have a vision for, a burden for? And then begin to channel your energies in that direction. So those are the three things that we look for in, in men and women in the church. Uh, recognizable maturity, the appropriate gifts for the ministry at hand, and thirdly, a vision for that very same ministry. Now, these men, by the way, this is something of a sidelight, but these men evidently were the first uh, deacons. Uh, we encounter that term later in Paul's letters. Uh, the word deacon itself does not occur in this passage, but uh, the verb diakoneo and the noun diakonia occur, and you can see how closely related they are to the term for deacon or diakonos, as it is in the uh, Greek. So I believe that here is the record of the selection of the first deacons in the church, and you will see that the primary responsibility of those who are biblically called deacons is to meet the material needs of the body. Uh, elders in the New Testament are given the primary responsibility of meeting the spiritual needs of a church through the teaching of the scriptures. Deacons were those who had the primary responsibility of meeting the physical needs, the material needs of the church. Now, I want to stress at this point that, uh, that neither one of these ministries is superior to the others. If you're to read through this account, it appears that the apostles thought that, they, thought that serving tables was beneath them, that they were too good for this kind of a ministry. But if you will observe carefully in verse 2, you will see that 
the apostles say we must not neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In verse 4, they say we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. Uh, And you'll notice in your margin in verse 4 that the word ministry could just as accurately be translated service. So this was the distinction the apostles were aware of. Our service is to the word. Their service is to tables. Either way, it's a ministry. It's a service. Both of them uh, equally important, equally legitimate. It's necessary that both the spiritual needs of a congregation and the physical needs of a congregation be met. And the apostles were simply recognizing that we have been gifted and called to meet one of those needs. Others in the body have been gifted and called to meet others of the needs. And this is a concept which Paul advances in Ephesians 4, by the way, when he says that the work of the ministry does not belong to the pastors. Now, that's a concept which is widely held in the church today, that churches hire pastors to do the work of the ministry. That's what we pay them for. That's why we have them on staff, is so that they will do the work of the ministry. But Paul's concept is quite radically different than that. He tells us that God has given us pastors in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The actual work of ministering to one another belongs not to the pastors, but to the ordinary garden variety type Christians in the body. And pastors have been called by God to equip the ordinary saints for the work of ministry, to help them discover their gifts and their capacities to minister to one another, and then to set them free and encourage them and challenge them to do that. And the apostles recognized that, even at this very early stage, that God has, through the Spirit, spread uh, gifts widely among the body so that it takes all of the giftedness of the body to do all the work of the ministry. The apostles simply could not do it all. Elders and pastors simply cannot do it all. It takes the giftedness of all of the body to do the ministry of all of the body. And you will see the... uh, in, in a number of situations that I can think of where, where ordinary, average people, just like you and me, who have appropriate gifts and a vision for a ministry can make a great difference in the life of a church entirely without any kind of supervision or involvement from uh, the official pastoral staff. You can think of a church in California where a number of women became concerned about the, the counseling needs in the church, among other women that were not being met, and concerned for for wives in, in hurting marriages. And out of this concern developed what came to be called a compassion corps and became a team which together would reach out to these women and minister to them, entirely apart from any uh, knowledge or authorization of the pastoral staff. It's a marvelous opportunity of the body at work. Think of Phil Westland, who is uh, developing a vision for prison ministry and discovering that God has given him a burden for the men out there and entirely without any... Uh, urging or prodding or authorization or arm twisting has begun to get involved in the lives of these men out there in a marvelous way. And that's the way God works, to spread the gifts of the ministry among all of us so that all of us can participate in ministering to one another. Now, the uh, fourth step in this process, after the uh, elders or the apostles had been made aware of the need, had considered their own priorities and had asked the congregation for input, Once these men had been identified, in verse 6, we see that the leaders of the church commissioned them for their ministry. These, these seven in verse 5, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, 
they laid their hands on them. So when these seven men were recommended to them by the congregation, the apostles first of all prayed over them. That is, they prayed over them to discern the mind of the Lord, to discern if these indeed were the seven men that God had set apart for this task. And when the apostles had determined that, then they laid their hands on them. That is, they publicly uh, authorized them to carry out this ministry among the body so that the church knew that these men were functioning with the full support of the leadership of the church. And that is likewise what uh, occasionally you see happen here at Cole as we send uh, uh, people like Stephen Holly Newman to Singapore or Dan and Monica Brown to minister to the Arab community. The leadership of the church will lay hands on them to send them off to indicate to all of us that the entire church and the leadership supports these people in ministry and stands behind them and is eager for their ministry to succeed. So this is the pattern, then, that uh, is revealed to us in these early chapters in Acts, uh, a pattern of how we as a church can deal with discontent and complaint. Uh, if you have one, bring it to the attention of the elders. Uh, I know that the elders in this church are concerned that the ministry be be taken care of. They are sensitive to this, eager to see this church become all that it can be. And uh, they need your input uh, to keep a finger on the pulse of the life of this church. Uh, so the first step is to bring these complaints to the attention of the elders. The second step is for the elders to consider their own priorities and determine if they have the uh, capacity to meet this need. And should they determine that they do not, then the third step is for the elders to come back to us and ask us for recommendations. And then the fourth step, when gifted and qualified men or women have been selected, for them to be set apart and publicly supported in this ministry. Now there's a result that Luke traces for us in verse 7. When this is done properly, Luke says that this is what happened. The word of God kept on spreading, and you can see why the apostles were set free to continue preaching and teaching the word, not sidetracked by other responsibilities, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So even the Jewish priesthood was being infiltrated with the good news of the gospel, and they themselves, who officiated daily in the sacrifices of the temple, were beginning to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And this is the promise, I believe, that's held out to us as a church body. If we will seek in as biblical and as loving a manner to work through the areas of weakness and deficiency in our church, to work in concert with the leadership of this church to meet these needs, and we too will see our impact in this community grow. We will see the word of God keep on spreading here in Boise, and we will see the number of disciples greatly increase as we continue to be salt and light in this community. Let's pray. We're uh, grateful, Lord, that uh, we can see from Luke's honest record here that the early church was no... Uh, more flawless than we are, but that their church was blemished as well as ours. And, uh, we pray that you would uh, help us to remember that uh, being a healthy church does not mean that we do not have problems, but that we have learned how to handle them, how to deal with them when they arise. And uh, give us the grace to grow in uh, our ability to wisely handle our recognition of weakness. Uh, give our elders great wisdom and discernment in, in providing direction for us as a church in meeting these needs. 
awaken in us a new desire to discover our gifts and to begin to exercise them so that we as a body may become all that you want us to be. We pray that you'll use us as you use this early church to impact uh, this entire community for the gospel, to be people who shine as lights in a dark place. We ask you for your grace and the supply of your power for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.